Praise the Lord. Again, for the privilege we have of gathering together to worship, to sing praises. Trust that that song that we just sang together is growing on you. It certainly has on me. Pastor Josh wrote it a couple years ago, and we brought it back these last few weeks, and what a blessing it is, truly, to us. I, uh, I just appreciate singing. I'm not a musician by any stretch. My father was, was a church music director. Uh, all my years growing up, before he uh, pastored, he, he became a senior pastor when I was in college, and so I only knew him as a music pastor, choir director. Um, we uh, had the privilege, I grew up, had the privilege of growing up in very large churches, and um, you know, just great, wonderful music, um, and we have great and wonderful music here, and um, so anyway, some of you may, as we sing that song, Pastor Josh explained this to me the other day, and I appreciated the explanation, but quite frankly, I'm still taken aback a little bit by it, um, because if you notice, when we sing that song, you get to the end of it, and it, you feel like it just kind of leaves you out there hanging a little. There's no resolution. Some of you are musicians, and, and you're expecting some kind of resolution to the progression there. He did that on purpose. He shared with me the reason he did that is it's, you know, it goes right before we open God's word together. And he said, I wanted the resolution to be the sermon. Because it leads us right up to God's word and God's word resolves that in our hearts. Praise the Lord for that. Incredibly uh, challenging and humbling. You know, it is, and I hope we never take it for granted, what we have when we get together like this. When I come up here and I say, okay, let's take God's word and open it and see what he has for us. You realize the privilege that is. The amazing gift that that is. We think, well, you know, we're talking about these people, especially in these days, we're talking about these people in the first century who they're getting what we have as the New Testament real time, as we would say today. You know, it, it's flowing from the apostles and they're writing these letters and, and ministering to the church. And no, they did not gather on Sundays and have somebody stand in front of them and say, now let's open God's word together and study it. <laughs> They gathered together on Sundays and on many other days throughout the week, the Bible tells us. But they gathered to listen. They didn't sit there with a Bible. What an amazing privilege it is. All right? And, and I will confess, you know, I'm of that generation. It took me a little bit of time to go and to get used to going from this to this over here. That's fine if this works better for you, <laughs> okay? But whatever it is, we have God's word. And it is God's word. What an amazing truth. I trust we will always make much of that, that we will always uh, exalt that and, and have a tremendous appreciation of that, for that, uh, in our hearts, in our minds, and certainly here together as a congregation. So this morning we, we turn our attention again, we return again, I should say, to our focus uh, in these days, that of discipleship. Discipleship. We have been like a laser beam focused on this the last three weeks. Uh, this morning we will turn to that. Next week, we'll kind of wrap that up. Then we'll get back to our series in Romans together. But we need these reminders. We need to uh, occasionally uh, go back into just those foundational, kind of basic Christianity 101 
themes that God gives to us and be reminded, you know, let us never drift from those. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to work our way through Romans and, you know, to, to, to see all of these amazing, you know, doctrines, all theologies, you know, uh, theology and pneumatology and Christology and soteriology and ecclesiology and, you know, martyology and on and on and on. All those words and some of them you're like, what is that? <laughs> the various doctrines, the teachings of scripture about God, about the Holy Spirit, about Christ, about sin, about the church. But all of that all of that has passed down through the ages, from generation to generation, through the act of, the practice of, the implementation of discipleship. Teaching the truths of scripture is part of discipleship. It's an integral part of discipleship. We do it not because somebody was like, you know what, somebody ought to write a curriculum. This is really good stuff. <laughs> no, we do it, we're committed to it, we're called to it, because quite simply, Jesus ordered it. Jesus commanded it. He expects us to do it. His final order before he returned to heaven was to go make disciples. When Jesus said, go make disciples, to that small group gathered with him that day, he, as it were, as we would say today, hit the eject button, pulled the eject lever, because it is an imperative. It was a direct, divine directive. Don't think about it. I'm not just suggesting maybe you ought to. No, he said, go, make Disciples. I got thinking about that this week and I just did a, some really quick research and came across an article. Some guys were interviewing the number one manufacturer of ejection seats. You know, those are really important pieces of airplanes. When a military pilot pulls the ejection handle, he or she is not staying in that aircraft. Not going to happen. According to the website of the leading manufacturer of ejection seats, the sequence of events results in anywhere from 14 to 20 G's being felt by that pilot in an instant. Now, they say that the human body cannot take more than 9 G's for a very short period of time before you lose consciousness. I think you understand in our frame of reference here, one G is what we are right now. We're sitting here, the gravitational pull on our bodies, all right, that's what makes us feel that terrible thing we call weight. <laughs> You go up from there, three G's, three times your body weight, nine G's, nine times. When you pull the ejection handle, it's somewhere between 14 and 20 G's. In other words, there is no other choice but to go. They're not hanging on. Well, wait a minute, hold on, do I have to? No, they're out of there. Now, we all understand, they never pull that ejection handle just for fun. I've known some, some pilots, it was very interesting, last Sunday, 
we are sitting, the four of us, are sitting in the Baltimore airport chatting. And all of a sudden, into the reception area, the waiting area at our gate, walks this couple. And it's one of those things where, now again, this is Baltimore, Maryland. It's one of those things where you look and you're like, I know that person. Why do I know that person? And in your mind, you're going through all the, you know, the connection points. And he looked across at me, and we looked at each other, and we were like, uh, uh, uh. Thankfully, by the time he got there, I remembered who he was. It's a young man who was in our very first youth group named Jeff Swartwood. He and his wife were traveling to Denver. He is going to become a pilot for Southwest Airlines. But before that, I asked him, I was like, so what's, when he was telling us all that, I was like, so what's it like to fly in the back of the bus now? Because he is, was a military fighter pilot. In his training, part of that training was learning how to pull the ejection handle and they'd have to do it. When that happens, there's only one, you're gone. When Jesus said, go make disciples, it is as though he reached out with a divine finger and hit that button in our lives. And yet so many times as Christians, we're like, well, yeah, but can we talk about this first? Can we like slow roll this? There is not a pilot out there that wants a slow ejection process. Because when they pull that handle or push that button, it's a dire situation and they are like, get me out of here. And yet, tragically, for whatever reason, we're like, okay, okay, I know I, know I need to, but, but, like, can we take this slow? And do we realize that what God has given to us, what Jesus commanded and expects of us, it's an imperative. You know why? Because there are people out there in our communities who are in as dire of a situation as it would be for a military pilot with both engines flamed out, wings on fire, he's got to get out of there. And yet they're plunging headlong into a Christless eternity. And God in his providence, God in his sovereignty, God in his grace and his mercy and his love. Said, go make disciples. Rescue the perishing. Pluck them, as it were, brands from the fire. That is done through the process we call discipleship. It begins, it is rooted in the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. It is then a lifelong process. Becoming a disciple, making disciples, being discipled, then looking back to those coming behind us and discipling. Jesus directed that it be done. But he also demonstrated how to do it. And that's what we spent the last two weeks looking at. He didn't just say, go do it and figure it out on your own. No, he demonstrated it by his life to these men for the better part of three years. But he was leaving. He couldn't stay. They begged him to stay. But he had to go back. The father was beckoning him back. Why? Because now he is seated at the right hand of the father ever making intercession for us. Praise God. But he said, but if I go, the Father will not leave you alone. He will send a comforter, the Holy Spirit, paraclete. The one who will come alongside you. The one who will indwell you. And he will help you. And he helps us do so many things. But one of the things he make, certainly makes us and helps us do is to fulfill this great command, this great commission. 
And so he was leaving and he delegated the responsibility to the apostles and ultimately to the church to make and to mature disciples. And so that's what I want us to look at here this morning. Discipleship delegated. Delegated. We're great at delegating, right? Somebody gives us a job and we look around, who can I pawn this off on? We call it delegating because that sounds like, you know, great leadership virtue. Jesus wasn't pawning anything off. He understood this is what it's going to take. Why? Because he said, go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Guess what? We are the uttermost parts. Do you think anybody listening to that very first command, that very first directive when he said go make disciples and he said Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost, do you think any of them had any concept of West Hartford, Connecticut? No. They didn't know it existed. They didn't know there was a landmass to the west. This massive place. Aren't you glad they went and made disciples? They got Jerusalem. Yep, got that. And you know what? Even they did what we do today. And they kind of got into a routine. And they're like, wow, this is going pretty good. We could just keep doing this right here. And that went on for a little while. And finally, God was like, I thought I told you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. You're stuck in Jerusalem. We need to help you move out. <laughs> and he allows and enters into that persecution. And we read through the book of Acts, called historically, it's called the Diaspora, the dispersion. That's what happened. And the gospel begins to spread. Thank God. Because here we sit today. And it doesn't stop here. Our job is not done. You say, Pastor, how do you know? Because the trumpet hasn't blown. Because the angel hasn't shouted. We got to sing this past week. We got to sing Is He Worthy, that song we love. Very unique song, but wow. We got to sing that with the, the writer, with Andrew Peterson and Chris Tomlin. Together with 10,000 people. You get to the end of it, just blow it. Blow the trumpet, we're ready to go. <laughs> but he hadn't done it yet. And so the command remains. We still find ourselves, just like they did nearly 2,000 years ago, hearing it, saying, go make disciples. I'm delegating this to you. I have shown you for the better part of three years how to do it. Day in and day out. But now you need to go do it. I was one person, Jesus said. I made disciples. Now all of you, go make disciples. I want to read for you. Several passages, they're listed up here, again, as we've done before, you may want to take a picture of that or something, because I'm going to go through this, because I want you to kind of see as we flesh this out, how this was delegated to the church. Because it's not so much as just like this really clear, state, singular statement, but it is so clear when you see the pattern, when you see it mapped out before us throughout the New Testament, and you notice here between, you know, Colossians and Hebrews and Peter, Acts, you've got different writers. I mean, you've got Paul's writings, you've got whoever wrote Hebrews, you've got Peter, you've got Luke. Uh, all those writers are represented there, and, and I could have gone to others as well. But So this wasn't just like one guy's idea, or and not all of them were apostles, not, not all of them. Luke wasn't there when Jesus said, go make disciples. Some, Jesus said, go make disciples. At some point in time, God used somebody to make Luke a disciple, 
You ever think about that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, Peter was standing there when it was said. Paul wasn't standing there when Jesus said it. I mean, if the list right there on those references, the only one that got it firsthand was Peter. But then it's passed down, and it has continued to be so. In Colossians chapter 1, and some of you will, this will really ring true. I know it will for our young people, our teenagers, because uh, Brother Stephen and Nicole have been taking or did take the, the teens through Colossians, which is just a wonderful, wonderful study. But in Colossians chapter 1, this is kind of the jumping off one. Verses 24 to 29, Paul writes to the church at Colossae, by the way, a church he never visited, a place he never was able to go, but he sent a letter to it, an inspired letter to it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. The stewardship of God that was given to me for you. Passing it down, passing it through the discipleship process. Two, make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. We didn't understand it. It was like, it was like, like all clouded up and all, all you know, veiled up and, and we couldn't understand it. And Paul says, but now it's fully known. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Is that not discipleship in a sentence or two? Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Do you need a better definition of discipleship than that? And then he says, for this I toil. Yep, it's a lot like The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 3.13 just simply said, exhort one another every day. Every day. It's a constant. There's all kinds of exhortation, and this sermon isn't about how to exhort one another. But that word exhort, it's not a lot of, you know, I think a lot of times what we, what we mean. It's not like get in the face and, you know, have a conflict or whatever. No, it's just that it's encouraging, encouraging and exhorting one another with the truths of Scripture every day. That's discipleship. A few years ago, in 2018, we had our, our, our theme for that year was people with a purpose taken from 1 Peter 2.9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Isn't that what we do when we go make disciples? We say, guess what Jesus did for me? We proclaim his glory. We proclaim his excellencies. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, Paul writes, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Again, we looked at this, discipleship defined, discipleship demonstrated. Isn't that what Jesus did? He implored people, be reconciled to God. That's where the discipleship process begins, to make a disciple. We're an ambassador. We come with Direct orders with the power of, the official representative of, a higher authority. God, in his sovereignty. This is an amazing statement. God making his appeal through us. With all humility, with all due respect. Sometimes I, got, I look at myself 
And I think about this verse, God making his appeal through us, and I would love to look at God and go, what were you thinking? But that was his plan. He decided to make us ambassadors and make the appeal through us to go to our neighbors, to go to our friends, to go to our associates, be reconciled to God. We quote around here all the time, reference it all the time, 2 Timothy 2.2. We're going to kind of land here. This is bringing it into where I'm going to focus here as an illustration for a bit. But you know, you know the verse, most of you. This is, as best as we know, Paul's last inspired letter, 2 Timothy 2. And he says to his son Timothy in the faith, who is now ministering in Ephesus, that passage that Brother John read for us a few minutes ago in Acts chapter 20, that is Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian elders. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He'll never see them again. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be sent to Rome. Ultimately, he'll be martyred. This is it. He had spent three years laboring in Ephesus, ministering in Ephesus. He, he references that in Acts 20. But he says to them, you know, here I'm entrusting, I'm delegating, I'm passing on to another generation. Go back to Ephesus, make disciples. That's really what he says in all those exhortations in Acts 20. And years later, he sends Timothy to Ephesus to kind of take the lead. And he says to Timothy, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, usually I make a statement right here about this verse, but I'll put, frame it as a question. How many generations in 2 Timothy 2.2? How many? Show me. Four. Excellent. See, some of you pay attention. <laughs> Four. Paul, Timothy, teach others who will teach others. These people Paul would never meet. But they are impacted by his ministry because he faithfully discipled Timothy. If you do your job, if you follow the directive, if you take up your cross, God in his grace, God in his sovereignty, God by his divine plan for his glory, there will be people who are discipled because of your faithfulness, you'll never know about them this side of eternity. But that's okay. Because God knows. And maybe one day in the second or third millennia when we're in eternity, you'll make a connection like we did this last week in the airport in Baltimore. We now come to Acts 16. This is where it kind of all started. With Paul and Timothy. This is where kind of that pattern begins to get laid out and fleshed out and one to one, and, and, and then there's a group, and, and then before you know it, Timothy is sent to an entire city, to a church. In Acts 16, verses 1 through 5, we read Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple, somebody had already discipled him, was there, made him a disciple. Named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. He's talking about the Jerusalem council. So the, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Again, it's all a picture. It's like you're watching it unfold. Discipleship is happening. But notice here, Paul gets to, to Derby and to Lystra. This is the second trip there. The first one didn't go so well, if you remember right. He ended up being stoned. Drug outside the city, left for dead. And I believe was actually dead, and God did a miracle and resurrected him. 
Timothy would have probably been a young teenager when that happened. I don't think there's any way he wasn't aware. And yet here we have some time later, we hear about this young man, Timothy, and he is a disciple. And look, and it says he was well spoken of by the brothers, that is fellow believers, at Lystra and Iconium. Here is this young man, probably 17, 18 years old or so. And seeing Paul be stoned for his faith didn't discourage him. It in fact emboldened him. He's like, I want to do that when I grow up. What, get stoned? <laughs> no, but tell people about Jesus. And he just started doing it. And here's this young man, and not only in his hometown in Lystra, but in Lystra and, I and Iconium, people were talking about this guy. And Timothy says, why don't you travel with me? Kind of takes him under his wing. Of course, we know he becomes known. Paul calls him, refers to him as my son in the faith. Over the past three weeks, we've looked at discipleship defined and demonstrated and, and all of those things. But this morning, as we, as we look at these passages, we see how it has ultimately now been delegated to the church. And, and that's not a new revelation in the 21st century. That happened mid-first century. That became very obvious that was the pattern. That was the expectation. Now, maybe it's not exclusively, but certainly primarily. You see, we have in days past studied that what God's word teaches about the divinely ordained institution of the New Testament church. Simply put, it is inconceivable that a professing and growing Christian will not be an active member of a local church. That is inconceivable. They never would have floated that theory in the first century. They would have been laughed out of town. They might have actually been disciplined. No, it was expected. You're a believer. You're a disciple. You're baptized. You have an affinity to, a connection to, an active role in a local assembly. I referenced this little book last week. It's a wonderful little, uh, little tool. Mark Dever wrote it. Uh, wrote it. <laughs> Wrote it. I got like 18 pages of notes. I'm trying to go real fast. It's a big subject. In chapter 5 of this, he talks about discipleship in the local church as it relates to the local church. Let me read this to you. Some of, some of you may be like, oh, that's where that came from. Dawson Trotman has a remarkable story. In the early 1930s, Trotman, a young lumberyard worker became inspired by 2 Timothy 2.2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Trotman was not a seminary grad or professor or a preacher in a local church. He was a lumber yard worker. He began teaching high school students to disciple one another and then in 1933 he extended his work to the United States Navy founding a group called... Anybody know? The Navigators. The Navigators. He mentored one sailor who in turn mentored many more on board the USS West Virginia before the ship sank at Pearl Harbor. 125 men were growing in Christ and sharing their faith. During World War II, the Navigators' ministry spread to thousands in the United States Navy on ships and bases around the world. The Navigators continued working in the growing military population until 1951 when it also began to work with college students on the campus of the University of Nebraska. Trotman died in 1956, rescuing a young girl from drowning in upstate New York. But the work went on, and today hundreds of college campuses around the world have a Navigators group evangelizing and discipling students. The Navigators website describes the organization as, quote, a Christian ministry that helps people grow in Jesus Christ as they navigate through life. They also say we spread the good news of Jesus Christ by establishing life-on-life -life mentoring or discipling relationships with people, equipping them to make an impact on those around them for God's glory. Dever goes on to write, I'm thankful for their ministry, especially in this area of discipling. But what about the church? 
Having said that, it's interesting that these two summary statements describe what churches should be doing. Some people raise concerns about parachurch ministries like the Navigators replacing the church. Para means beside. And it's worth asking whether these parachurch ministries really work beside churches or apart from them. Certainly, there are some circumstances, such as sailors on a battleship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, that require discipling apart from the local church. It would be tragically wrong, however, to use something like a campus ministry or a businessman's fellowship to replace the local church when it comes to making and growing disciples, as if you were trapped on a ship at sea. If it's unwise to do discipling without a church, it's worse to do, it is, it's worse to do church without discipling. Now, please understand, Dever here is not throwing off on the navigators. No, we are all very thankful for ministries like that. We're all very thankful for the various parachurch ministries, mission boards, Christian camps, Christian educational institutions, Christian evangelistic uh, institutions and programs. Very thankful for all of them. But God ordained the primary role to be the local church. We support financially, with prayer support, some of these parachurch ministries. Very thankful for them. They are sometimes equipped to do things that we in a small congregation cannot do. But we don't get to delegate what was delegated to us. We have the primary responsibility. Let us never forget that. The church is the primary organization through which God intends for discipleship to take place. All these various ministries, camps, publishing houses, campus ministries, mission boards, etc. They're a great blessing, but they're ultimately subservient to the church. Dever goes on to write later on in that chapter, in the New Testament, the local church is at the very center of the disciples' obedience and discipling work. It's not optional, it's basic. It's basic. The process of discipleship also takes place from person to person. You see, it's really hard to be discipled by yourself, if not impossible. Who's read the book Robinson Crusoe? Maybe as like an elementary student, right? Or way, way back. I mean, it's an epic work. Daniel Defoe uh, wrote it. Um, I mean, it's like 600 pages, I think. I, re I read it. it it's, it's one of those that definitely captures the attention of uh, adolescent boys. But it's really interesting. One of the pictures, one of the uh, uh, parts of it, Daniel Defoe writes of Robinson Crusoe speaking in the first person. I am cast upon a horrible, desolate island, void of all hope of recovery. I'm singled out and separated, as it were, from all the world to be miserable. I'm divided from mankind, a solitaire, one banished from human society. I have no soul to speak or to relieve me. Think about it. I realize there are some days where you're like, you know what? Oh, to be on a deserted island. Most pastors are there about Monday morning. Not me, most, others. Not really. Oh, it'd be so nice just to, just to be by myself. For a bit, maybe. But you find out really quickly, you know what? God didn't create us to be alone. God created us to be in community. To have fellowship with others. And discipleship takes place as God's people are obedient to God's directive and assume the responsibility delegated to them. No, you are not going to be rightly discipled by yourself. It's not how God ordained it. You're not coming up with a better plan. You are not going to be rightly discipled. Outside of the parameters of a local church. You're not coming up with a better plan. I'm very grateful for, for those other things. 
On Tuesday morning, I have a group of businessmen that meet with me, and we, we have a wonderful time in God's Word every Tuesday morning in my office. There's another group that meets on Wednesday morning of men. There's other groups that meet throughout the week. Thank God for those. But those are secondary to the ministries of the local church. For seven years when I pastored in the greater Atlanta area, every Friday morning, I'd leave my house about 6, 6.15, and I'd drive into downtown Atlanta, and I led a businessman's Bible study at a restaurant from 7 a.m. till 8 a.m. every Friday morning for seven years. It was a joyous time. It was an amazing time. Incredibly humbling. I'd sit there on Friday mornings, and we'd open God's Word together. There ultimately ended up being between 30 and 40 business leaders. I mean, these are guys who are partners in law firms and heads of Fortune 500 companies, and they're sitting around tables, and we're doing Bible study together. And here was something, though, that I realized in those years. I was so thankful for the opportunity and, and the privilege of it. But I realized, and I would caution them, I would challenge them, because, I mean, at Metro Atlanta is the size of Connecticut with twice the population. They all worked downtown in their accounting firms and legal firms and whatever else it was. And so they would come in there from all the various points on the compass. And that's where we would assemble. But they all go out of there. And it dawned on me rather quickly in that process of those seven years that I did it. There are some of these guys who are treating this as their church, and it's not. And I would tell them that repeatedly, regularly. Guys, this is not your church. I'm thankful you come. I'm, you know, it's encouraging to have the opportunity. Some of the friendships that I made, some of the friendships those men made in those days are still in existence today, and it's a blessing. But that wasn't church. They needed a local assembly back wherever they came from. Discipleship takes place as God's people are obedient to God's directive and assume the responsibility delegated to them. You know, one need only to look at the one another passages in the New Testament to see the clear pattern that's established. I'll qu finish quickly here. Believers, Christ followers, discipleships are to love one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one, one another, instruct one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, exhort one another. The list could go on and on. At least three apostles visit these themes repeatedly, and the obvious implication is that they're passing the baton to the early church to do the work of making and mentoring disciples. And as we've said, there may be no example more clear of discipleship than the relationship between Paul and Timothy. How many of you are concerned about the world in which your children or grandchildren are growing up? Yeah, me too. Me too. Our two boys are 29 and 25, 26. They're in their 20s. They have birthdays. She remembers them. We send them gifts. <laughs> Our granddaughter, Lily, turned five this week and started school on the same day. It hit different than it did 25 years ago when we sent Robert, her daddy, off to school. It hit different. The world's always been sinful. The world's always had struggles. But we understand what we say when it's different. We're concerned. So how many of us are unsure on how to prepare them for what, for what they may face? Yes, we're facing some unprecedented times for us, but not for God. And guess what? God knew this time was coming. God knew culture would be like this. God knew these days would be upon us. And so 2,000 years ago, he said, I got a plan, and the plan is discipleship. To go make disciples from generation to generation because that is how they will be equipped 
to deal with the challenges, to answer the questions, to stand strong in their faith. You see, as with all things, Scripture's our guide. It gives us the example of what to do and how to do it. How we invest in that next generation, whether it's physically or spiritually, to prepare them for what we may lie ahead is the question. God helping us, we here at FABC are endeavoring to be very intentional about this. We all share this responsibility. By God's grace, I'm trying to model it before you as your pastor in all humility and as it was to me. But it can't be done by one or two or even three. We must all engage. You see, discipleship is investing in the next generation, both physically and spiritually. Paul had a burden for the believers in the churches, but he also had a burden for the next generation and the future advance of the gospel. Just because he had reservations about a guy named John Mark didn't mean that he wasn't willing to take the time and expend the energy to invest in the next generation, and Timothy is a clear example of that, of how ministry was to go forward beyond the first century. And now I skipped like five pages because I was going to say all that, but time's out. You see, as we disciple, as we do what God has directed us to do, has Jesus demonstrated it for us, and now it's been passed down to us here and delegated to the church. We do what Paul modeled as well, what he had been taught what he taught to Timothy, what they taught to others, and so on and so on and so on. Here we are starting growth groups 10 days from now, September 20th. I'm excited about it. We're starting with two, one led by myself and Renee, another one led by Pastor Josh and Rebecca. Let me tell you this, if we don't add to that count with some of you leading groups in the very near future, then we have a serious, serious problem. We're going to show you how to do it. And some of you need to be ready to take up the mantle and to do it alongside of us. This isn't about, okay, well, I come and that's what we pay these guys for and they were educated for it and, and so on, so we just sit and listen. Uh-uh. No, no. You got to be involved. You got to have a part. I don't for a second believe that we, years from now, quite frankly, even months from now, should just have two groups. They ought to be growing, then we ought to be subdividing and, you know, going, going forward. I can't teach all of them. Pastor Josh can't teach all of them. You got to take up the mantle and be a disciple maker. Say, Pastor Sweat, I don't know. Yeah, you can. Because remember what we said? Jesus demonstrated, invited. I just invited you to be part of the discipleship process. Jesus instructed, we're going to do that. We're going to instruct. Jesus entrusted. We're going to look and we're going to say, you know what? It's time for you to lead a group. But it didn't stop there, did it? We looked at this last week. But then Jesus also empowered. He told his disciples, and lo, I'll be with you always. But you're leaving. Yeah, but God's going to send, the Father's going to send the comforter. He'll give you what you need. Timothy watches as Paul faithfully communicates to the believers, the events, the decision of the Jerusalem Council. He witnesses the impact of faithful ministry. And the gospel and the teaching of Scripture has come to us patiently, methodically, faithfully from generation to generation. Paul to Silas to Titus to Timothy to others, John to Ignatius to Polycarp to others. 
And it is impossible to rightly be a believer to be a believer in the church and not be involved in some way of making and mentoring disciples and being discipled. Doesn't mean you got to be part of necessarily the program, but but it's the place to be a help due to our human frailties. That's why we put it in place. And so as we began this morning, I said that discipleship it's not ex- exclusive to the church. But it is the primary vehicle God has put in place. I'll talk more about this next week. But let me just remind us. When Paul wrote the letter to the church at Colossae, he gave to them a mission statement. He greets them. He assures them of the fact that he's praying for them. He confirms to them of the deity and the preeminence of Jesus. And then he gives them their mission. And he said, him, Christ, we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. With all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The goal, the mission is discipleship. Will you put your hand to the plow? Will you put your shoulder to the wheel? Will you venture out into the field? Will you take up the cross? Will you join the work God is desiring to do in And through us. Because we do this. By his grace. And for. His glory. Let's pray. Father thank you. For your word. The power. The clarity of it. Thank you father. For the work. That you have done so faithfully. Through the generations and the ages. Father, we we sit here today, we sing together here today, we read your word here together today, we preach it, we teach it, we study it, because there were those who went before us and did what you directed, followed what you had demonstrated, took up the cross, the job the role, the challenge that you delegated. Father, may we not fail. May we not, may we not stumble. Help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. By your grace and for your glory, we pray these things in your name.